From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A major artery across Colorado, really across the nation, is open again, at least partially. How is I-70 through Glenwood Canyon faring after its reopening weekend? Then U.S. Senator Michael Bennett on that big infrastructure package before Congress. It's not just about roads. Rural broadband, he says, is also critical. If you've got kids in one community who don't have access to broadband and kids in another that do, that's tantamount to accepting a world where some kids have access to textbooks and other kids don't. Later, there is understandably a lot of focus on the South Park guys trying to buy Casa Bonita. Today, more of the restaurant's backstory from a local superfan who's been trying to save it. When they closed for the pandemic, they closed their doors and they closed their books. So they nobody got paid. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It's a reopening that has consequences for the entire country. Traffic is flowing once again on I-70 through Glenwood Canyon after that devastating mudslide. One lane in each direction opens Saturday. It'll be months before all lanes are back. Throughout the closure, CDOT's chief engineer, Steve Harrelson, has kept us abreast, and he's back this morning with an update. Hi, Steve. Good morning. How did the weekend go? Any snarls or surprises? No, it went very well. We um, we got the road open uh, about 6.30 Saturday morning, and initially we had the speed limit set at 35 miles an hour because there was still a lot of uh, dirt and dust on the road, and uh, as traffic you know went through and, and kind of got that that dust settled down and mobilized out of there. Then we, we kicked it up to 50. Um, yesterday afternoon, we had a, a bit of a storm cell moving through at about four four thirty or so. So we closed the road again, just as a precaution for about 45 minutes. But then by five 30, um, we were ready to go again. And, and it's been running ever since. And I think cars are traffic's moving at 50 miles an hour. Um, and everything seems to be flowing pretty well. The forecast calls for the possibility of thunderstorms Wednesday and Thursday, I'll note, around Glenwood Springs. And so that pattern of I-70 through the canyon uh, with the burn scar there, I imagine that pattern of opening and closing will continue. Y- yes, we've we've got a, a nice little routine where if there's a <laughs> thunderstorm watch or a flash flood watch, we, we station our, our staff to be ready to close it. And as soon as it hits a warning, um, then then we shut it down. And, uh, you know, the best case is it's as soon as the storm passes, you know, within a half hour, 45 minutes, we can uh, reopen it. But we, we don't want anyone to get hurt. Is it possible that another mudslide comes that was as catastrophic as the one at the end of last month that shut the highway down for a prolonged period? Um, absolutely. It, I, I will add that the the storm that caused the the mudslide that caused all the structural damage was an exceptionally large storm. It, um, it, it rained, um, somewhere between three and four inches, uh, 
um, in less than 45 minutes or an hour. So it, it was a, a very intense rain. Um, I think even had we not had fire scars, that that rainstorm would have caused problems. Hmm. So, you know, we're getting towards the uh, the end of the monsoon season. I think we can get through another couple of weeks. Um, the the climactic patterns should should turn favorable for us. Um, so, you know, that keep your fingers crossed. But that that's what we're hoping for. But we're preparing for the worst. Preparing for the worst. Uh, I'll note that uh, CDOT put out a press release just prior to the reopening of Glenwood Canyon that uh, implored people not to gawk, not to uh, cause slowdowns by taking in what must be uh, a rather stunning, maybe even apocalyptic scene. I I have to imagine that road work continues even as traffic flows, huh? Yeah, absolutely. And it it is a construction zone. And, you know, even yesterday after you know, the road, the road had been open for 24 hours. Our, our maintenance crews still hauled out, um, I believe about 150 truckloads of material. So, um, you know, they didn't take, we got the road open and we're continuing to work. So, you know, treat it like you would any construction zone, just, you know, drive slowly and carefully and watch what you're doing. Um, don't, don't try to take it in, let your passenger take it in and describe it for you rather than uh, you taking it in yourself. The other day, we spoke with a former CDOT engineer who oversaw the original Glenwood Canyon project. And Steve, I'd like to play a snippet of that conversation and get your reaction. Uh, In it, he is referencing climate change and its effects on infrastructure. All of I-70 Mountain Corridor was designed in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So whether it's the Eisenhower Tunnel, Vail Pass, or Glenwood Canyon, I'm just concerned that these sorts of issues are going to continue to affect our mobility across the divide for many, many years. So I'm curious, is CDOT learning anything about climate resiliency in Glenwood Canyon that it will apply elsewhere, uh, maybe on the I-70 corridor or, or not? So after the 2013 floods, we we looked at uh, resiliency, and I think CDOT is a, a national leader in looking at resiliency. Um, you know, on the Big Thompson Canyon, we we relocated the road in in a couple spots to get it up out of the creek. Um, so we're we're uh, we can certainly do that. On in in this instance, um, it, it's a little harder to relocate the road because it. It's kind of is where it is, and it's it would be a massive endeavor to to move it. But you know there are some things we we can think about uh, expanding uh, the opening where, for example, where where Blue Gulch or any of the other gulches come down, and where the where the um, where the rock um, covered the road. Uh, the other thing we can do is is try to improve the upper reaches of the watershed to give it give the um, you know, store the water so that it doesn't all come down at once. So build a, a, a temporary or even a permanent pond um, so that while the, the soils in the forest heal, um, we don't, we won't get those huge runoff events like we got uh, last month. Mm. Um, also building bathtubs right upstream of the road um, where the, the geography allows it. There's a, a location called Thai Gulch, um, which that's where much of the material they hauled out yesterday came from. They, you know, I think 80, 80 truckloads came out of Thai Gulch and that's to, to be, build a hole so that when the mudslides come down, um, it has a place to land rather than on top of the road. We have less than a minute. Steve, uh, is Cottonwood Pass a viable alternative to shore up politically 
and geologically in just a few moments? Um, so we're certainly going to look at it. Um, we, we had a meeting with Garfield and Eagle County last week and talked about it. And, you know, it, it's, uh, it's going to be, you know, reaching out with, with all the affected stakeholders, um, what that road looks like, you know, what its operations would be, I, I think remains to be seen. I think it physically it is possible. Okay. Um, it is, you know, there's a reason they didn't build the interstate over that road or over that route. It's, it's, uh, you know, the, the road travels from gypsum to basalt, both um, geographically and geologically. There's there's lots of soil. All those layers of, of rock that you see in Glenwood Canyon, mm-hmm. you come across when you when you um, try to build a road um, on that route. So uh, it's just tricky to build. You know, there's there's one little mountain that is. Uh, Steve, I'm so sorry. I'll have to wrap you there. Oh, and sorry. It, it's an issue that we can definitely get into because uh, the question of whether there should be a release valve for I-70 through Glenwood is a critical one. That's CDOT chief engineer Steve Harrelson. Now, securing federal money to repair I-70 and just possibly to shore up Cottonwood Pass. Those are some of the issues we discussed with U.S. Senator from Colorado, Michael Bennis. He spoke with Avery Lill. A note that their conversation was recorded Friday. That was, of course, before the Taliban overtook the Afghan capital. Governor Jared Polis announced that the state secured $11.6 million of federal funding to help with I-70. But that's only 10 percent of the total request. Will there be more federal dollars coming in the future? There definitely will be. The, the governor put his request in for about, I think, $116 million on a Monday and uh, $10 million was sent our way on uh, the following, uh, on the next day, on Tuesday. So I think the administration understands how vital I-70 is uh, and, and uh, we will work with the governor and the entire delegation to make sure that um, we get the resources that we need to be able to recover from this, um, this event. How quickly do you expect those resources to come Colorado's way? Uh, we're going to push as, uh, to get it as quickly as we can. Closing the highway, it's disrupted tourism on the western slope and supply chains. Will there be any federal relief for those businesses? Uh, we haven't had a discussion about that yet. I think the focus right now is trying to get it open as quickly as we can and back to normal. That's probably the most important thing we could do for the small businesses and uh, that have that are suffering from from this closure. I'm heading to Grand Junction to have a meeting with the small businesses there, and and maybe I'll learn something there that will help us think of more imaginative approaches. And does whether or not those businesses get federal relief depend somewhat on how much and when those federal dollars come in the future? I, I think the most, as I said, I, I really think the most important thing to everybody is get focused on getting the road back open, and 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 that's what we're trying to do. Is there any money in the infrastructure deal that could help make that transportation corridor perhaps more stable in the future? There is a, a historic generation, once in a lifetime investment that we're making in in roads and bridges uh, throughout the country. Colorado will benefit from that. More than $2 billion is going to come to Colorado for uh, transportation and, and, and even more money than that. Uh, another 900 million for for transit. So I think there's going to be an awful lot of investment throughout our state to make permanent improvements to Glenwood Canyon and other other places to better protect the traveling public from these kind of mudslides and other other events like fires. 
When you say other places, could that mean alternative routes to Glenwood Canyon? Uh, it, it could mean alternative r- routes, and I know that that the governor is already looking at that for Cottonwood Pass. I've been up over Cottonwood Pass twice since these slides happened, and, and it is definitely in need of improvement. This infrastructure deal, in addition to the money for transportation, it includes a lot of money for what some might consider non-traditional infrastructure, like broadband investment. How much of that would go to Colorado, and what would that kind of money pay for? It, it is about $100 million will come to Colorado, and and the broadband provisions of this bill were based on my Bridge Act, which I wrote uh, in consultation with places like the Delta, Delta Montrose Electrical Association and Longmont, both of whom have been able to build internationally competitive broadband networks uh, because of the ingenuity of, at the local level in Colorado. And, and, and we have turned the page in this bill on subsidizing massive uh, telecom companies and expecting that they're going to build broadband to the speeds that the American people need. So I'm, I'm really excited about that part of the bill. I think it's going to make a big difference in Colorado. And the pandemic revealed how critical uh, broadband is. And it is basic infrastructure. I mean, if, if you've got kids in one community who don't have access to broadband and kids in another that do, that's tantamount to accepting a world where some kids have access to textbooks and other kids don't. That's the history of the United States. We've had moments like that in our country's history. Those were not our shining moments. So I think it's really important for us to both for both for for our kids and for the economic development of Colorado, especially in rural areas, uh, it's important for us to, to make these changes and to, to follow the lead of, of Delta Montrose and, and Longmont. And this infrastructure deal also has money for Western water infrastructure. Will that help alleviate the effects of severe drought? Uh, it definitely should. And there's also uh, $2 billion in this bill consistent with my tribal water bill uh, for tribes. And that also ought to help throughout the West. Uh, our wa- water infrastructure in, in throughout the West is often more than 50 years old. And it is not, uh, it was not built with climate change in mind. It was not built with the kind of droughts that we're facing now in mind. And I think that's one of the reasons why we were able to get it into the bipartisan infrastructure bill, because there's such a recognition that um, that these systems are obsolete. And you mentioned climate change and making infrastructure more resilient. Is there another project apart from water that you hope that the money in this in this deal that is dedicated to fighting climate change will fund in Colorado? Well, we've got money uh, dedicated to building an electric vehicle uh, charging network across the state of Colorado and across the country. That's going to be really important. Again, also in rural areas where people have to drive long distances, that's a critical part of adoption of of EVs. Um, My hope on climate, though, mostly is when I cast my eyes toward the reconciliation package, which we are also going to pass as part of, uh, as alongside this infrastructure bill, where, among other things, hopefully we're going to include a clean energy standard and maybe even a price on carbon. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi wants to pass the infrastructure deal at the same time as the $3.5 trillion budget. As a member of the Finance Committee, how do you see the budget going forward? I think that look, the Speaker has her hands full. If anybody can pull this off, she can pull it off. She's It's difficult. She doesn't have a huge margin of votes in the House. And in the Senate, we have 
you know, we need every one of the 50 Democrats to support this bill because there's not a single Republican in the Senate who is willing to reverse the Trump tax cuts for the wealthiest Americans that we're going to use to pay for uh, this reconciliation bill. So we need every one of us. And I think we'll get there, but it's going to be a lengthy negotiation over the course of the summer. And then in the fall, I expect these bills to essentially move uh, in tandem one way or another. You mentioned that slim margin, given that Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona have made public reservations. How do you expect them to get on board with the slim Democrat majority? Well, I think we're all we're all going to have to have a, a, a lengthy negotiation over the summer. There's going to have to be give and take. Uh, but I think that the fundamental uh, aspects of the bill uh, are likely to stay in place and, and likely to be passed including, by the way, an extension of the child tax credit, which is really important to me because I've worked on it for a long time. And we're already seeing the the Census Bureau did a survey last month of the way people use the child tax credit. 47% of people use it to buy food for their families. I think another 20-some percent used it to pay for child care. That's exactly, exactly what we thought would happen uh, when we passed it as part of the American Rescue Plan. Now we've got to try to extend it for as long a period as we can through reconciliation. American consumers have seen rising prices for everyday items recently. That sparked concerns over growing inflation. How can the Senate address those concerns? Well, we definitely have to keep an eye on inflation, and it's a job both for the, uh, maybe the Senate, maybe the Federal Reserve. But I think that it's too early to tell uh, uh, whether this is just a short-term blip in inflation or whether it's something that's here to stay. I think we just have to keep an eye on it. Um, in the meantime, it gets really good that uh, the economy is recovering as quickly as it is. And we need everybody who uh, has not yet gotten a vaccine to get a vaccine. And when possible, I think people really ought to wear masks to try to keep the transmission rates low and make sure that when school opens, it can stay open and when small businesses open, that they can stay open as well. It's it's really in our hands, and we, we just need to work together. Senator Bennett, thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot for having me. Democratic U.S. Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado speaking with my co-host Avery Lill. New congressional and state legislative maps are coming soon, chosen by independent commissions. The idea is to take politics out of the process— But as CBR's Ben to Berkland reports, it already has some critics. For the first time in state history, Colorado lawmakers have no role in drawing the state's congressional map. Instead, it's in the hands of a politically balanced, randomly selected commission. Yuri Rudinsky is with the Brennan Center for Justice. He says compared to state lawmakers drawing maps, redistricting commissions tend to be a lot more transparent and inclusive. If you create a buffer between redistricting and these sorts of hyper-political interests, the process will be more inclined to put the interests of the population of people, of voters first. And it was voters that handily approved this new process three years ago. If they hadn't, it would all be in the hands of Democrats since they control the state government. Republican State Representative Colin Larson says a commission is more fair, and he's glad there's a way to keep Democratic lawmakers in check. They would have basically unilateral power to just gerrymander everything and probably, you know, I would argue create a map that 
doesn't reflect the actual people of Colorado, but would cement their majority. It's a truism that people in power rarely do things that lessen the amount of power that they have. That's Democratic State Senator Jeff Bridges. This year, 10 states are using commissions to draw their maps, while some others have a hybrid process. Bridges supports independent commissions, but he says he's concerned that most of the states using them are run by Democrats and that it could give Republicans an advantage. So there is a danger that you will have legislatures in red states drawing districts that minimize the voice of certain people in their state and end up sending a predominantly one-sided delegation to Congress. Colorado's commission includes four Democrats, four Republicans, and four unaffiliated voters. None are allowed to have close ties to politics. They started their work with a draft map drawn by nonpartisan staff. Right now, the commission is traveling the state and holding public hearings to get feedback. But the process does have its critics. Yes, they're going out into the community and hearing from the community, but in such a limited way. Teresa Trujillo is a Democratic organizer from Pueblo and is worried the commission is less informed than lawmakers would be about how key communities and regions of the state are interconnected. She says she did vote for the commission and thought... This will help make the process more democratic. This will help make it more understandable in the community. It will allow for greater input by the community. And what we have seen so far in this process has been the opposite. Latino organizations around the state have raised concerns about the preliminary maps and are submitting proposals they say do a better job of giving voice to Latino residents. The commission is only at the draft stage, and the boundaries could change, but Trujillo worries they won't. Trying to go against what is already written down on paper and drawn out on a map is going to be difficult and a challenge for our communities. Putting an independent commission in charge of redistricting was meant to remove some of the mystery from the process. But it also relies on the public understanding enough to push for the maps they think are best. Trujillo and others say that's been an ongoing challenge as they try to get people involved in such a complex and ultimately political process. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. The latest round of census data, which will inform redistricting, shows Colorado's population grew by three-quarters of a million people in the last decade. The fastest growth was in smaller, front-range counties. The new data also show Colorado's becoming more racially diverse. Having said that, there's concern the census undercounted people of color due to high levels of government distrust among immigrant populations and other historically undercounted groups. The Purplish team will explore the many facets of redistricting with a special series that'll start right here Friday on Colorado Matters and, of course, on the Purplish podcast. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with the story behind the Casa Bonita story. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Strictly speaking, in Colorado, a buffalo is a collegiate athlete from Boulder, whereas a bison is the great hulking, humped, and hoofed animal that once covered the Great Plains. Tens of millions of them. A distant relative of the true buffaloes of Asia and Africa, the American bison has always played a role in our nation's story. Native people knew every part of the bison had value. 
many settlers moving westward thought otherwise. And by 1900, the continent's largest mammal was at the edge of extinction. But conservation efforts soon kicked in. In 1914, the city of Denver established a herd of bison with two from the zoo and a few more from Yellowstone. Today, you can see their descendants alongside I-70 in Genesee Park. And in the San Luis Valley, a herd of 2,000 roaming a 50,000-acre pasture. A Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio. Raise your Sopapilla flags because it looks like Casa Bonita won't be diving off a financial cliff. The Mexican restaurant slash amusement park may soon have new owners. You probably know by now they are the creators of the TV show South Park. Kyle, you don't understand. Casa Bonita is my most favorite place in the whole world. I'll just, I'll just die if you don't take me, please. Sorry, my mind's made up. Trey Parker and Matt Stone confirmed Friday they're negotiating to buy the restaurant, which they grew up going to. The news came in a Facebook Live event they did with Governor Jared Polis. In a few minutes, a man who has mixed feelings about the deal. First, here's a chunk of Friday's announcement. Now, um, the elephant in the room, because this has been a big, uh, big deal in Colorado, as you know, um, we, you know, have taken our kids to Casa Bonita. I grew up going there. You guys, I've probably been there as kids. That's kind of what inspired the very accurate portrayal on the show. I mean, some things you exaggerate. It came from experience. Yeah, that's like Casa Bonita. Um, (laughs) Coloradans would love any details about, you know, what's going on or the about our with our iconic institution and just open ended. You know, what what can you tell us? Okay, well, we have something to announce. We have some news. We have some breaking news. And I don't know. As of about an hour ago, so I have to qualify this pending bankruptcy mm-hmm. proceedings that, that this all have to happen in a couple of months. We've, we've come to uh, an agreement with the owner and we bought it. Yeah. Congratulations! Oh my gosh, congratulations. <laughs> awesome. It's such a great day. It's such a wonderful day. We did it. I did not know that going in. <laughs> That's so what we've been waiting on. That's what we knew that we were allowed to ask the question, yeah, but we did yeah. not know. Um, that is so yeah, yeah. Awesome. Again, it has, it has to go through a proper if it goes through, right. but we're on yeah. the so verge. If it goes through, we have an agreement, and we're on the verge of having And that. if it goes through, yeah. can you promise us that cliff-driving gorillas will remain? Yes. Yeah, okay. you know, we're going to keep all the two guys stuff. in gorilla suits yeah. running around. Yeah, we'll, we'll get two gorilla suits. <laughs> yeah, but we, we also know that there's a lot of people in Colorado that have been working on, you know, that love yeah. Casamanita and working on, you know, and so we're, we're excited to work with everybody and, and make it the place we all want to make it. Yeah, and they'd love to. I think they've raised some money on GoFundMe yeah, exactly. and maybe they can sponsor part yeah, of it or something. They, and They're welcome. Yeah, yeah we're going to figure yeah, out we'll them figure it out. Together. Absolutely. And then the, the other thing, you know, now that we know this, like um, we all love Casamanita, the one area that we lo- all love to see an upgrade. I think I speak on behalf of everybody who patronizes Casamanita is the food could be a little better. You've probably heard yeah, that. I so. think it could be a little more than a little yeah. better. A little, there you go. <laughs> you know, it's bad when I, when I took my daughter when she was four and she was like, oh, like yeah. if, a, if a kid can't stomach it, it's pretty bad. It was like survive the food, stay for the experience. Yeah, yeah. We, we love, you know, maybe some growing in Colorado. No, no, no. I mean, I think I think everyone knows the potential of what yeah. that place can be and 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 we certainly do and and I think it's going to be an awesome. Well, it really Colorado is thing. again, figure everything should work out, but it is. Yeah. It really is like my wife said it to me when I was ta- telling her about it a couple weeks ago and she goes, "Every time you talk about Casa Benita, your light your eyes light up in this <laughs> way that it doesn't doesn't happen in any other way. It's, it's like a magical place yeah. for kids. It when when yeah. when we first were talking about it, <laughs> But before I knew it was possible, the first conversation we had, I was driving and, and <laughs> the phone rings and I put it on the speaker and Matt goes, okay, 
I don't want you to get too excited. <laughs> this was a, a lot. We've actually yeah. been working on this a long time. Yeah. People think that this, we just threw our hat and we've actually been working on this a long time. And Matt's like, there's a chance we could become part owners of Casa Bonita. And I had to pull over the car. I was like, yeah. we made it. That we did so it. Cool. <laughs> You're right. Well, we hope that it won't be that if this all works out, it won't be 10 years till you're back together here. You'll be hopefully back together for a ribbon cutting. Oh, we'll come to Casa Benito all the time. We're going to be trying on gorilla suits, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I even, you know, because of course everyone, I, everyone wants to jump in off the cliff into the pool. And they're like, you know, and, and yeah. we actually had a big party there where we, we had a private party at Casa Benito when we opened Book of Mormon here mm -hmm. several years ago. And I still I was like, we, we have private party. Can you do that? And they're like, no, you can't do it. You'd have to own the place. <laughs> <laughs> Trey's going to belly flop off that thing. <laughs> so now available for any private parties you want. So, yeah, yeah, um, and, yeah. and uh, well, what we're so excited. So, you know, that is a, uh, uh, and as I said, it's one of the things on South Park, which was really accurately portrayed. I mean, that was just like, yeah. what kind of, for people yeah. around the country, they're like, that seems like they made it up. Like, yeah, that exactly. be. Yeah. But like it is. So that's yeah. really cool. Congratulations. Hopefully that'll, that'll yeah. work through. Yeah. Well, aside from Parker and Stone, Casabonita's biggest fan might just be Andrew Novick of Denver. He has been hundreds of times. He organizes an annual Casabonita art show. And he started SaveCasabonita.org, raising money to pay folks who were left holding the bag when the entertainment venue filed for bankruptcy. Andrew, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. I'm going to ask for your reaction to this news in a moment, but I want to focus first on the folks who hit hard times. How much money were you able to raise for them, and who exactly are they? Uh, we raised over $68,000, which is amazing. We've used that money um, first and foremost to you know, help uh, advertise the campaign, but also, more importantly, we actually bought some of the debt um, in the bankruptcy. So Casa Bonita... When they closed for the pandemic, they closed their doors and they closed their books. So they didn't, nobody got paid. You know, they owe a lot of big folks, national companies, but they owed the mariachi band $2,700. And that carried for the last more than a year. Some Latino food vendors on, on West Alameda. And so we looked at the creditors list and we reached out to a bunch of creditors and it's called a transfer of claim. So you actually buy a claim and, um, you know, got them paid. And like with mariachis, we've actually hired them for a couple of events. They've gotten some other gigs because of it. So it's really been, it's been great in that aspect. That's the Talisman Quartet? Yeah. Okay. Um, thanks for that background, by the way. Uh, what, what's your reaction to the Parker Stone news? Well, man, I mean, as you probably know, we've been working on this for a long time, like more than a year. And following the bankruptcy and we've actually, because of our campaign, we've uh, we've had investors reach out and we've been working with a single investor to buy Casa Bonita. And we were very close. And then they came out with that announcement that they're buying it. It's a little disappointing, actually, because of the amount of work that we've done and all of our ideas that we want to do and really to make sure that the longevity of Casa Bonita stays there. So I have mixed feelings because... Obviously, South Park, I mean, they love Cuspanita like I love it, right? They have the wherewithal and the funds to do great things there. I hope it doesn't become like a South Park amusement park. You know, I hope they hold just the character that Cuspanita has and had for 25 years before South Park. 
Um, but that said, I mean, maybe they want to work with us. Maybe there's something we can do to get our foot, you know, footprint in it somehow. You know, we have great ideas, but uh, it remains to be seen. So I hear that you want a lot of the tradition to continue. What is something you hope changes? They, they mentioned, for instance, the quality of the food. Although I have to say, as much as people bag on the food, I've always thought it was like a decent taco salad. Um, but what, what, what would you like to see change? Yeah, I mean, the food is the food is one. Like, I actually like the food. The chili relleno plate is like definitely the way to go. I think that, you know, a lot of people complain about it. But it's a restaurant that's been around more than any other restaurant that we know. So it's clearly not about the food. But I would improve the food. But, um, I mean, I just, like, make sure that things work. Make sure that it's just the upkeep of it. A lot of things have just been left broken, mm. you know, for years. And even, like, the video games and the prizes for the video games and the, the gift shop. And what about the current owners? Have you had any real communication with them? Yes, plenty. Last July, last year, um, when their website went down and their Facebook page went down, I actually sleuthed out the contact info for the CEO in Scottsdale. And I've been talking to him for many months about the status of Casa Bonita and just as a fan. Um, But also, I was all that time working on trying to evaluate the business and work on investors and actually try to acquire it. And I just met the CEO 20 minutes ago at Casa Bonita. Wait, 20 minutes ago before this interview? Yes, I just talked to him. You're the first person I've talked to since I talked to Bob Wheaton, the CEO of Star Buffet. So was the pandemic all that went wrong for Casa Bonita? I wonder what you were able to glean from that conversation. Well, I mean, I've researched it a lot. Casa Bonita is very profitable. However, a lot of that money goes out of state. It's not used to support the restaurant and the employees' well-being. So I think that one of those things that I've known for many years is that if it was locally owned, it would be much better for the folks who work in there. I suppose that's one reason you'd like to have a stake in it. Yeah, I think that having local representation would be very important. And I've really got to know a lot of the people who work there. You know, and I go there every couple of weeks, at least for the tours, you know, the free tours they're doing are amazing. Yeah. So what is the status at this moment? We're speaking on a Friday afternoon. What is the status of Casa Bonita in terms of its business right now? So they opened the gift shop and the arcade because really, I mean, it was a technicality because in their lease, they have to be open. And that was one of the reasons why they got uh, the filing for eviction by the landlord is that they weren't open even when they were legally allowed to be open. So that's when they filed the bankruptcy. So they have to be open so that they don't violate the lease again because they can't file bankruptcy a second time. So what they did is they opened the gift shop. And, you know, some people say that's not really open, right? That'll be solved in court. But the entertainment staff in there, they said, we should do tours. And so they actually do costumed tours. That was their idea. Of just like, if people are going to come in for the gift shop, that's kind of lame. Let's do tours. And so like the first tour I went on, the the waterfall wasn't running. So it's very eerie and kind of quiet in there. The next time I came for a tour, they got the waterfall going. And then now like the music plays, um, there's cliff divers now. So like, it's, it's really great. And for anyone who says they would go there, but they hate the food, 
just go there now because you don't have to eat. You just go for the tour. It's amazing. And you get to hear all about I mean, a lot of stuff that people don't know about the architecture in there. Oh, give us There's one food. cool fact, Andrew. Um, I would say the parts of Mexico that are represented, it's like late 1800s, um, Acapulco, Guadalajara, and Mexico City. And those are three different areas of the restaurant. Why is this place so special to you? I've been going there my whole life. It's so unique. I've been all over the world, right? I've been to theme restaurants in Japan, right? And Caspanita holds up to all of the experiences I've had all over the world. And it's our own thing. We've A lot of us have gone there our whole lives. And when I take people there for the first time, it blows their mind. And like, it's so great for me because I went there the year it opened. I was like five years old. So I can't experience it for the first time like I would love to. But when I take someone there and seeing through their eyes, it's like I'm going the first for the first time myself. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. Always great to talk to you. Andrew Novick of Denver is a Casa Bonita super fan and organizer of Raise the Flag to support people who were financially reliant on the restaurant. We reached out to Parker and Stone's people. They got back with us right away explaining that the South Park duo would have more to say once the deal's approved. It's an interview I'd give all my cheesy poofs to host. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The film Black Ice follows a group of young people heading from Memphis to Montana to try ice climbing. But it's really about being young and black in America today. Early in the film, members of the group chat as they drive into the snowy mountains. It is a lot of snow out there, dog. I really hope ain't no black ice on this road. Why everything that's bad got the name black? Like, they be like, black ice. And how you know it's black? <laughs> it looked clear to me. It looked clear to me, exactly. <laughs> Maybe if y'all didn't paint the streets black, it wouldn't be black. <laughs> Maybe if it had an opportunity to be on top of the snow. <laughs> The film is directed by Zachary Barr with Boulder-based Real Rock, a documentary production house. Malik Martin is featured in Black Ice and helped with cinematography. They spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis in June. Malik, give me a little picture of South Memphis where you grew up. What was it like? South Memphis, you know, it's a beautiful place. It's a well-tight-knit community. It's just one of the places that has been overlooked and abandoned over the years. You know, when it comes to infrastructure or anything, it needs upkeep. And in my neighborhood, there's certain places if you drive through, it looks like places through the 80s, you know? But back when I was a child, it was a thriving, beautiful place with painted sidewalks and, you know, well-off people who own their houses who've been living there their whole life and just, you know, real neighborly and close-knit. But with anything, you know, pressure make diamonds. So even though it may be hard in a lot of places, there's a lot of beauty a lot of art and a lot of history that oozes through our streets and through our individual citizens that come from this place. And Malik, the film also focuses in on this climbing facility that was built, Memphis Rocks, that helped enhance the area's sense of community. What is it about the place and climbing that helped bring people together? South Memphis has always been a communal area. Like, it takes a village is something that's an old African proverb. But poverty and trauma impacts certain people living under it differently. And the gym came in and kind of gave a safe place to recreate because over the years in the projects, it just seems that like things have been taken away, but things weren't added. 
in the way of the, the school systems. You have to live up to a certain amount of passing rate. And if you don't have another pass rate, we close down the schools. So there's not as many schools as there used to be when it comes to community centers and safe places to recreate. The funding has been closed down and shut down. So like the kids had nowhere to go. And, you know, when it comes to things of poverty, when it comes to things of, um, you know, crime, it all comes from people having not. Memphis Rocks became a safe space and a pillar in the community where people could safely come recreate safe place where you can come get something to eat, a safe place where we're redefining what currency is, meaning that money isn't the only way that you can pay something for it. You can come with your time and your energy. We opened many doors and invited people in. You know, the community was there and Memphis Rocks just brought, you know what I'm saying, a foundation that the community could stand on. So it's optional whether you pay when you go in. And we also hear from Christine in the film talking about rock climbing and what it can teach people. When you rock climb, you have to relearn communication from how we was raised. On blade. To be able to be vulnerable, to say, damn, like I've never done this before, I'm scared of heights, or like, you really got me? We just experienced this power. And Malik Christine, who we just heard from, uh, runs Memphis Rocks. What does he mean by rock climbing and having to relearn communication? So when you rock climb, you're in a vulnerable position because typically you're 20 to 40 feet. In the gym, you're like 20 to 40 feet off the ground, outside even higher. And someone literally is holding onto your life in their hands. And so to, you know, to have that trust on just saying on belay. If someone says belay on, you have to have enough trust in them that they check their gear, everything is weighted properly, et cetera. So like relearning communication, um, learning how to be more attentive while someone is, you know, having a super focus, and especially if you're outside on a high wall, like I've never have been so tuned in and when I'm just when I'm doing crack climbing or when I don't want to die on the side of a mountain, you know, I'm like super right. tuned in. <laughs> and Zach, during the film some experienced climbers visit Memphis and propose this idea of an ice climbing trip. How much does climbing in a facility like Memphis Rocks translate to actual ice climbing? Most everyone these days learns to climb in a rock climbing gym. That's a universal experience all over the world. So, you know, you learn the movement, you learn the safety, um, you learn to enjoy it. But what you don't learn is, you know, how to freeze in a winter camping trip in Montana, uh, sleep in a tent outside, cook all your own food, hike through the snow, keep your toes from falling off. So these guys had a um, little trial by fire, for sure, in the movie. One of the members of the group that we get to know really well um, that heads to Montana is a kid named Salacio. Um, Zach, tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, Matt, Salacio is a, a kid. He's, he's 20 uh, when we, the film meets him in South Memphis. And, you know, he's had a really rough go of it. Unfortunately, he's like a lot of young people from that neighborhood. He grew up without his parents. He grew up in poverty. And he literally is hungry. A lot of the time he doesn't have enough, always have enough food or enough money or, and especially he doesn't have enough love and support in his life. And so Memphis rocks does its best to love and support him. 
Slaceal works at Memphis Rocks at the climbing gym. He actually works in the juice bar making smoothies. And it's a well-paying job that um, is, is critical for him in his life. Memphis Rocks is a safe place. Memphis Rocks is a place to get something to eat. And so in the film, when Salacio gets invited on this trip, he's never left his neighborhood. He's never been on a plane. But what he has had is a lot of incredible experiences of survival. He's tough as nails. And, you know, if anyone can sleep outside in snow and learn how to climb ice, it's Salacio. He actually has some injuries uh, from a shooting. Yeah, he was he was actually shot when he was in high school, which was just a few years back. And he's just learning still how to deal with that. He's one of his arms doesn't work that well. And the bullet actually also went through his jaw and messed up his teeth. And he's had to relearn how to talk. And this trip in this movie, I think, really showed him that he is beyond capable, that he can you know, especially with love and support and some people around him to help him, he can make it in this life and he can succeed. So the group heads to Montana and there's lots of talk about Montana and its whiteness. Someone says the place is so white, it hurts your eyes. Malik, how would you describe what it was like for the group to first show up in Montana? Yeah, when we landed in Montana, it was like all eyes on us. I'm pretty sure they've never seen that large group of black people coming through the airport or moving through the town at once. Uh, but it was just like, you know, a, a full change of scenery. You know, basically, if you were just to hop on some kind of magical transportation device that flies across the country and uh, you pop up to somewhere, Memphis is flat, 300 feet sea level, you know, going up to like 8,000 feet. You know, a big shock for anyone. The views is taking it all in. And wondering what we're going to climb. Like, we're going to climb that mountain? It's like, no, you'll die, sir. You know, we ain't going to climb that one. <laughs> but uh, it, it was just nice. You know, it's just like anywhere else in America is a minority. It's no shock to be surrounded by whiteness because it's a minority. You're always surrounded by whiteness. It's just whiteness with mountains and snow. So that was a different, you know, experience. And just seeing how people who don't know how to walk on snow and trying to walk down the street and slip in the slide was funny to see. We, when Salacio's on the, the plane, Malik asks him, like, hey, Salacio, how are you feeling right now? And Salacio says, looks out the window of the plane and says, I feel like a powerful man right now. And for me, that just was such a great moment in the movie, but also personally, you know, a little wake-up call to my, my privilege and my place in this world where, look, I've been on a lot of plane flights, but let's face it, it is an extremely privileged thing to do. And it also makes you feel on top of the world. And, you know, it's, it's cool to give Slacey that experience. He, he deserves it. And if you're not familiar with ice climbing, watching it in this film looks really hard. You're climbing on this frozen waterfall. And, Zach, tell us about what ice climbing entails. Well, it's a pretty weird sport. I ain't going to lie. Um, you got these ice axes in your hands, and you, which are spikes, and you got spikes on your feet that are called crampons. And these tools allow you to kind of dance up the exterior of, of a vertical frozen wall. And again, just like traveling on a trip or camping outside in the winter, or trying something new, it makes you feel a little bit like a superhero. And when you get to the top of that thing, you know, it's like breaking those five boards in karate or something. You just feel like you can do anything in life. 
Zach, the most touching part of the film is watching Salacio learn to climb on ice. Given his injuries from the shooting, he can't use one of his arms, so he's coached to sort of use his hips um, to pull himself up. At one point, he seems to get pretty defeated. What was it like to watch him begin to get it? Man, it was just one of the best experiences of my whole life. I mean, to see that by just giving someone some tips, being there for them, um, making sure they have the right clothing, the right equipment, that they can do it. I mean, he went from feeling like this was not for him, his disability was not going to allow him to get to the top of that mountain, to being feeling like he's invincible, to feeling like the world is for him. And, you know, I've been filming climbing now for probably almost a decade and been lucky enough to film with some of the best rock climbers and mountain climbers in the world. And I can honestly say that this was, for me, the most moving and important story that I've had the privilege to work on. Any sense of whether you think some folks in this group are going to become lifelong ice climbers? Lifelong ice climbers? I doubt it, but I will say you know, we're plotting to go to Everest next year. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know about lifelong, but my kids, yeah, well, they're probably going to have to climb some ice once or twice in their life, you know, just, you know, just to keep them honest, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, maybe not lifetime ice climbers, but perhaps lifetime stargazers, maybe lifetime dreamers, lifetime travelers, lifetime comrades, you know, lifetime friends. You know, the, the point of this trip in this movie is not climbing. You know, it's about dreaming for a better life and, and working together to achieve that. Zach, Malik, thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Thank you so much for having us. CPR's Andrea Dukakis speaking with Black Ice director Zachary Barr of Boulder-based Real Rock and Malik Martin, who's featured in the documentary and helped film it. They spoke in June. There's a virtual screening and discussion tonight. We'll link to details on the Colorado Matters podcast page. And that's our show. Roll those credits. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.